Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Claire and you are with us for half an hour of, you know, some of our favourite science and what we hope will be some of your favourite science as well. And with me today, Chris. Hello. Hello, Claire. How are you? I am fighting fit, shall I say. That is great to hear. As a father of two young, young children... Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. coasting on, on um, I've had some sugar, I think, basically. Is, is <laughs> great, great, great. Ask you in another 25 minutes and it might yeah, be something completely right. different. And Chris, what sort of science have you brought to us today? Well, Claire, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a few anti-vaccine protests around the country. Yeah, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. It is, it is. And look, there's a lot of things going on with that. And there's a lot of that has been written about these protests and people's motivations for them and this kind of stuff. And clearly there's a lot of, you know, there are some conspiracy theorists and extremists out there. There's also some, you know, concerns coming from various kind of legal reasons and other kind of stuff. And look, it is a mess. And look, you've got to be honest, you can't convince everyone about, right. I guess, the value of these things. But one common thing that you hear is people do have concerns, they voice concerns Mm. about risks of the vaccines. That is something that you often hear. So I thought I would look a bit at some of that today. Yeah, some science related to it. And there's two main things I want to focus on. I want to briefly cover a study that I've seen doing the rounds that claimed a link between vaccination and miscarriages. This study has since been retracted. So I just want to have a bit of like a dump on how bad it is <laughs> <laughs> great it is still getting shared i guess on social media it's still like you know sure. influencing people mm-hmm. uh, the other thing is a bit more serious it is i think a lot of people are concerned about the risk of heart complications from vaccination and look that has been taken out of proportion but mm. it's not that there is no risk there but i think you know we haven't discussed that before so i think you know we need to actually just sit down and have a look and say what does the science say and what is the risk and benefits? And spoiler alert, I'm, you know, coming out on the side of the vaccines, clearly. Yes, it is. It is time to address some of those concerns and um, unvalidated claims that keep popping up. Yeah. Like I said, we're not going to solve everything. But, you know, if, if you're speaking to someone who is concerned about these kind of things, you know, this is the kind of information that you can you can bring up in your conversation. Hopefully we'll you know, provide you some some ammunition, really. Uh, so that's me. Uh, Claire, what about you? Well, I actually have a story a little bit close to home. Well, my parents have um, a couple of cats and one of them has um, just gone into the vet hospital because she has been bitten by a paralysis tick. <gasps> yeah. They yeah. are scared of those things. I know. I know. I am as well. And so should um, non-native animals in Australia should be very scared of paralysis ticks. 
So um, I thought it was a good time to do a bit of a public service announcement, a little, um, a little bit of, yeah, lost in public service announcement today. We have a look at what the paralysis tick is, where it is, um, what sort of damage it does and um, how you can prevent that sort of thing coming into the season that is sort of like the height of um, paralysis tick admissions into vet hospitals and the like so yeah um for any you know dog cat owners out there or anyone anyone who just is as scared of paralysis ticks as chris then stay tuned for that one a little bit later in the show brilliant well i'm gonna say it on with the show bit of like self-boosting here a few months ago you may have actually seen me on the news uh me and my partner kaylee were on a few news stories i did see you chris you were everywhere at once yeah we were sharing our covid story from last year basically to try and raise awareness of the benefits of getting vaccinated particularly to pregnant people because covid is quite dangerous uh, for those who are pregnant and yeah now the vaccine has been approved so yeah that was a, a big thing i guess for us and so i was kind of surprised then when i heard anti-vaxxers claiming that the vaccine is more dangerous in pregnancy despite the science mm. that i was familiar with and particularly they were spreading the notion that it causes miscarriages Mm. Now, recently I came across some of the things being shared about this sort of misinformation and it was a mention of a supposed reanalysis of CDC data that apparently showed a frighteningly high statistic of something like 82 to 91% miscarriage rate from vaccination before 20 weeks gestation. It seems quite alarming. It is extremely alarming and obviously concerned a lot of people. And you can understand why people, when they hear about that, supposedly done by scientists, that they would be very concerned about it. Now, I've got to play right from the start. This figure is wrong. Um, I'm only mentioning to highlight that it's wrong, but also to highlight how such misinformation and disinformation can cause problems. Disinformation, I think, is defined as deliberate spreading of kind of misinformation and this i think takes that um, category because the analysis was done by two new zealand researchers simon thornley and alicia brock and as far as i can tell they knew what they were doing was wrong but they did it to make a point right how how was this sort of being found out so okay so they did uh, they used data that had followed the effects of vaccination on pregnant people but they followed up the effects of the vaccination over a three-month period so, uh, and the original analysis is from the CDC in the United States found that there was no difference in uh, miscarriage rate between those who were vaccinated and those who weren't. Mm-hmm. But so, with Thorny and Brock, they decided to focus instead on just the people who were vaccinated before 20 weeks and the pregnancy outcomes. And that's where they got their alarming number. So, the reason they did this was because the study was only for three months. And they didn't like the idea that the study had only followed up for three months because it didn't get any long-term effects. And they want to point out how bad this was. But when you look at, say, a pregnancy outcome after three months from someone who's in the first trimester, pretty much the main outcome you're going to get if a pregnancy ends is a miscarriage. Um, People don't carry to term after three months from the, the first trimester. 
Yeah. Um, sometimes I think that, you know, this is into 20 weeks, so you could get like very early, um, premature. You could, um, I think stillbirths came to this category as well, but essentially the main way to get an outcome in this study is to have a miscarriage, which is why you get like a, a 90% miscarriage rate, because it's pretty much the only thing that can happen. Right. But doesn't mean that the vaccine is causing it. It just means that when they set the end date, the only way they can advance it, you know, all the people who continue being pregnant were not counted in their study. They only counted those whose pregnancy ended and it oh, ended because they miscarried. That seems flawed. It is flawed. And like I said, it seems to be knowingly flawed. They were pointing out what they saw as a deficiency in the CDC analysis, but they did it by releasing what they knew was an inaccurate figure to the world. This paper oh, has now damaging. been retracted. Yeah, it's now been retracted, but it's out there. I mean, how many people who shared the statistic do you think are going to be reading the retraction? Sure. And I mean, you know, it's an incredibly emotional time for pregnant women, um, you know, in that first trimester. It might just be something that you hear and, you know, you don't necessarily have access to all the all the information and different people saying it to you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, that really got my go. So I thought I would point that out a really obvious sort of flaw in that study. Mm. Um, like I said, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was a slightly more, I guess, realistic concern, which is that that you might have heard about cardiac problems following vaccination. Now, we talked before about the the blood clots, the rare, unusual blood clots that sometimes occur following the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, that is another known risk. It's one that Australia has actually managed very well. Um, the risk here that we've seen here has been even less than that seen overseas. So we've done a good job of mitigating that and part of that was to encourage younger people to get the Pfizer mRNA vaccine instead of the AstraZeneca one but then that's where these other heart problems come in so the two conditions that people talk about are myocarditis which is inflammation of the heart muscle and pericarditis which is inflammation of the membrane around the heart now it seems to be the myocarditis that is the more serious one and there are better figures for that so I'm going to focus in terms of details, I'm going to focus on that because I'm going to have to chuck some numbers out here. Okay. So I'm going to focus on the main one. Get, um, get, get ready for numbers, everyone. Yeah, just some, I'm just going to highlight the main numbers. But like I said, it's, it's inflammation. So inflammation uh, is often caused by an immune response. Uh, in this case, it's also commonly seen in younger males. Uh, the symptoms of myocarditis are chest pain, um, pressure or discomfort, uh, palpitations, uh, shortness of breath, and some non-specific symptoms like fatigue and that sort of thing. The relation to the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, which is also an mRNA vaccine, was first observed in the United States, and it took a while to be clear that something was happening because it is pretty rare. The TGA in Australia has been keeping statistics uh, out of the latest statistics say that out of the 23.4 million doses of Pfizer given in Australia, there have been 315 cases considered likely to be myocarditis. So that's and a pretty small number. That's a that's a pretty small <clears throat> number. And what are the what are the outcomes for those people who who have been diagnosed with that? Look, they're generally pretty good. Um, the half of the patients were admitted to hospital. Um, Eleven of them end up being treated in intensive care, but most patients treated in hospital were discharged within four days. Oh, yeah, um, wow. Yeah. You know, in terms of heart problems, it's not the most serious heart problem you can have, and it, and it does resolve, it seems, for most people. As I said, the heart rate is highest in, in males, young males, in particular those aged 12 to 17 and who have now come into the vaccination program. The rate currently seen in Australia is about 85 per million um, mm. cases. Uh, for the whole population, it's around 19 per million. 
So, you know, it's, it's um, I don't know why you think 85 per million is a big number or not. It turns out, I'm trying to get a, a idea of what the normal rate of myocarditis is in the population, the so-called background rate. Mm. I haven't actually found great figures for Australia, um, but it's comparable to the rate that we're seeing from these vaccines, which makes it very difficult to work out that the effect is real. Right. Okay. However, there is a more important comparison, um, which is how does it compare to the impact of COVID infection itself? Absolutely. As I said, myocarditis and pericarditis, they're um, inflammation caused by an immune response. And so it's not surprising that if the vaccine for a disease is causing this immune response, then the disease probably would do something similar. And indeed it does. Um, And as you might expect, it does so at a much higher rate. Um, A recent calculation of the rate of myocarditis from COVID-19 infection puts it as high as 450 per million in young males. And that's compared with the 85 per million we were doing, we said before. Right. Okay. So that's over five times. So that is a, I mean, and that's just looking at the myocarditis. It's not looking at all the other um, oh, no, because along with COVID-19 infection, you have a lot of other risks as well. You've got a lot of other risks and a lot of other disease. Including possibly of long COVID and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, I mean, obviously COVID-19 comes out much worse than this. And like I said, it doesn't, it makes, it makes sense because the, uh, look, there's, I found some papers that looked at the, how COVID-19 can cause these problems. And it does seem to be, like I said, mostly the inflammation. So it's the immune response to the infection. And that's going to be stronger when you actually have the virus in your system. The virus itself, though, can also get into the heart and cause hmm. direct damage. So it is much more dangerous. But I guess what the interesting thing is, I've seen people commenting on they're worried about this heart risk from the vaccine. And they say things like, I don't want to take that risk. Um, I would rather rely on my own immune system to protect me from the virus. Um, but it is the immune system that causes the problem, and it is the same mechanism that causes the problem with both the vaccine and the virus. So if you're worried about the vaccine, the virus does exactly the same thing, only more so. Mm. So it does, in that sense, it doesn't make sense to say, I'm going to take my chance with the virus rather than the vaccine, because the virus is clearly worse in this case, even for this very specific situation. So, yeah, look, um, I wanted to put that out there. I wanted to give, give another kind of pro-vaccine message, but in particular to say, look, there is a risk there. It's not there is zero risk. But once again, you're comparing it to the alternative, which is getting COVID infection. We are seeing the virus is still circulating. It looks like it will be with us for some time. And so the best way to protect yourself remains getting vaccinated mm. and not just trying to roll the dice and hope that you don't get this virus. So, Chris, it is coming into summer. The weather is warming up. People and animals are getting out and about more. I know I am, especially now lockdowns have finished. But you know who else is getting out and about? <laughs> I mean, you know from the intro. Yeah. It's yeah, the yeah, paralysis. I do, I do. I'm not, not going to pretend I didn't listen you, to the intro. You're not, you're not going to pretend you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, some people call them scrub ticks, bush ticks, wattle ticks, hardback ticks. There are a few names out there for them. But their scientific name is Ixodes holocyclus. Does that start yes. with an X? No, an I. I-X. Ixodes. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Mm, yeah. 
So they're um, they're pretty dangerous eight-legged arachnids. That's right. Ticks are arachnids, so they're like in the spider family. They're not in the insect family. And they can cause all sorts of trouble. Um, if you're a human, uh, most likely you're going to be in a lot of pain if you get, you know, bit by parasitic paralysis tick. But they're also incredibly dangerous and life-threatening for other animals like beloved dogs and cats. And like I said in the intro, the reason why I'm talking about a paralysis tick tonight is that one of my parents' beloved cat, Cosmo, Cosmo the cat, is currently in the vet clinic with some serious paralysis tick poisoning. So, yeah, I know it's real bad. She's on a drip. She's getting all sorts of tick envenomation uh, serum to help her deal with the poisoning. Poor little thing. I have lots of questions, not just... The first one, I guess, is, like, what is the outcome look effectively for, for poor Cosmo? Is it, like, is the treatments good? Are they able to... I think, like, a lot of these things, the earlier that you get it, the better. But one tick can take down, a, you know, a full-sized dog or a full-sized oh. cat. It just depends on how long that tick has been feasting and how much of the venom um, has transferred into the animal because it takes a while for for the paralysis tick to feed on the animal. And so it's over a process of days and days. So if you find it early um, and you get treatment early, then you've got much, much better outcomes. So I think uh, from what the vets are saying, she's going to be, she's going to be okay, but we're just holding out because she's, she's still got some sort of um, some paralysis in her back legs and, you know, having trouble breathing and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, Chris, this is a public service announcement as well as a totally. lost in science story because, you know, paralysis ticks can be found in a lot of urban areas in Australia. So, yeah, make sure, check your pets and invest in prevention as well because uh, it is tick season. So what so urban I'll... areas do we know where they are? Yeah, so the tick can be... Uh, found mainly along the coast of eastern Australia. So pretty much from Cooktown, so in Queensland, far north Queensland, Cooktown, all the way down through New South Wales, coastal areas, all the way down to Lakes Entrance in Victoria. So we're talking quite quite a long way and quite a um, diverse habitat. And normally paralysis ticks live within around a 20-kilometre band sort of inland from the coast but in some places they can be found more than 100 kilometers inland and and really what determines that is um one particular factor it needs to be warm and it needs to be humid so ticks paralysis ticks really love the humidity so there are some places really sort of like moist escarpments and ranges such as the is it the bunya mountains in queensland Mm -hmm. yeah and the lower blue, blue Mountains in New South Wales, where they're a little bit further from the coast, but you can still find the ticks there because they are in that sort of, have that humid uh, environment. I guess we have the joy to look forward to of climate change expanding their range further south. I was thinking about that when I was doing the story as well, thinking about how well they would do with the, in, with the atmosphere warming up. Now, what they don't do very well with is wind and direct sunlight and you know i guess like any animal the the desiccating effects of those sorts of things so so humid 
sort of leafy environments suits the tick to a T. And, you know, it's, it's helpful because it also suits the tick's major host. So dogs and cats aren't its major host, but the tick is a parasite and every parasite needs a host. And the major host of the paralysis tick is actually the bandicoot. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But they can also feed on um, other marsupials such as possums. But yeah, the bandicoot uh, sort of, you know, burrows around in those leaf littery areas looking for grubs and it likes to sort of like be in an understory vegetation in a humid area and loves picking up ticks just like, um, well, it doesn't love picking up ticks, but it ends up picking up ticks. And the ticks love ending up on a, on a bandicoot. I was going to say, because it's a um, paralysis tick, I was expecting it to be um, on the, the numbat, because they're numb, because <laughs> paralysis, because <laughs> explain the <laughs> that's, that's good. That's yeah, good. okay, okay. Yeah, I'll, work, yeah. I'll work on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the scientist coming out and me being like, well, Chris, actually, the native animals have evolved alongside the tick for, you know, Many, many years. So, you know, number. So they don't get the paralysis? They do not get the paralysis. Ah. Yeah. So numbats, even though, you know, they're Western Australian, so they don't have paralysis ticks over there anyway. <laughs> but um, your bandicoots, your, your possums, all our native marsupial species um, who are parasitized by the paralysis tick, they don't get the paralysis. They have... Um, evolved alongside are immune to their envenomation um, this is why we should have quolls as pets instead of cats I guess, <laughs> right i am 100 percent for that chris i think you know i think you know i am quolls oh so anyway the tick i said um you know it needs a host but it doesn't this paralysis tick it doesn't just take one host to complete its life cycle it actually takes three hosts um so arachnologists or tickologists i'm not exactly sure the correct term but they call this a three host tick (laughs) which is great but that's what they name it like ah three hosts eh we'll call that a three host tick so first first host um the ticks hatch as a larvae and the larvae um isn't like a larvae like a grub it's like a hard shelled insect looking larvae it's got six legs um and it has to find a blood meal from a host so jumps on a host it feeds for four to four to six days and you might have seen um often these are called bush ticks because they're they're quite small and you can sort of like you can get a lot of them at once because you know you end up in a nest and they all jump on your butt not that that's happened to me it's happened to someone i know though so (laughs) that's a different story for another time then there's a second host. So once the larvae molt, they turn into an eight-legged nymph after they after they have their blood molt, eight-legged nymph. Uh-huh. And they require a second blood meal from a different animal. So that could be a bandicoot or something else. And they molt again and then they become an adult. So then finally the adults require a blood meal. And, Chris, this is the... I mean, I know you were scared of ticks before, but this is even... This is pretty scary. So the female adults require a blood meal of up to 10 days before dropping off and laying 3,000 eggs in leaf litter. But the males also require a blood meal. But they don't take it directly from a host. Instead, what the males do is they'll jump 
on a host like a bandicoot or, you know, your cat, um, and they'll search for uh, a female to mate with. And then they will both mate with the female and also parasitize the female for a blood meal. See, now that actually makes sense to me because... I mean, the ticks, I know, you know, they, they kind of, they latch onto you and they're going to stick yeah. there and, and yeah. feed for ages. It doesn't seem like they're the most mobile creatures to go around looking for a mate. So it kind of makes sense that then the male would find a female rather than they all jump off and then go searching for each other. Because I don't think they're in that kind of, they don't but, that I kind mean, of lifestyle. Yeah, I just find this, I don't know, just a bit awful. Um, I didn't think there was anything worse than a than a tick and what the female tick does. But I think a male tick, you know, parasitizing off the female tick, um, not even getting its own. It also you know, means feed. that the female tick is eating for two. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. eating for 3,000. Three. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this whole life cycle takes about a year to complete. And the other thing that I learned about ticks this week is that to find a host, they do this thing called questing. <laughs> That's what it's called. So they'll climb onto vegetation and they'll like wave their little forelegs slowly until a host comes within reach. This is called questing. And then they'll grab onto the fur and, um, you know, find that feed. And they're, atta- they're attracted to hosts via um, stimuli, so such, things such as carbon dioxide, heat, and movement. So they'll right. quest via carbon dioxide. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, gross. Yeah, it is. It is, it is very, very gross. And, um, yeah, like we were saying before, you know, the paralyzing neurotoxin doesn't affect native mammals, but dogs and cats and other introduced animals like sheep and goats, they're really susceptible to the envenomation so extra care needs to be taken, especially at this time of year, spring and summer um, is when you need to make sure your animal is protected. The other thing to note is that tick populations boom when there's been a wet year the previous year. And, you know, we had a La Nina year. We had quite a wet year last year on the east coast of Australia. So I feel like, you know, I mean, I don't have the official, the official word from the tick forecasters. But I feel like it could probably be a big year for ticks. So tick, tick, boom. <laughs> that was very good. That's yeah. that. That, yeah. that was one of your best. Yeah. One of your best. So check your dogs and your cats for ticks with regularity, um, and you can also talk to your vet about preventative medication that you can treat your pet with during this time. Make sure you look for any symptoms and changes in behaviour for dogs. This can include things like cha- like changes in the way they bark gagging, wobbliness in the back legs, coughing, uh, or if they, you know, go off their food. And in cats, they have, you know, changes in vocalization, unusual breathing, agitation, not eating and walking difficulties as well. And if you have any concerns or questions, don't hesitate to reach out to your vet.
that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us wherever you found us today again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.